it, it really is always wonderful to be here. And I think just in terms of looking at it, it's almost like you've got a brand new facility. This is like a new church, you know. Isn't this wonderful? <clears throat> I shouldn't be the one, and I'm just kind of going ahead of myself here, I think, by just saying, my goodness, whoever worked to get this right, well done. It was, it's outstanding. <clears throat> and, uh, I, yeah, I, I just love what has just been communicated from the front, from Biju here, where he speaks about the church and what it is. And I think that this church, you may have mentioned, I may have mentioned it before, but this church is like a lung in the city. We all have a lung. It's considered to be, by the medical profession, a vital organ. And, uh, you know, given the fact that the city needs a lung that can breathe in the toxic and just breathe out fresh life of God, that's what you are. And there was something just about this church as I've watched it grow. It's true. I've been here from the start or been an observer from the start. And I think of, you have a moment where Paul goes to fetch, or rather Barnabas goes to fetch Paul, and he brings him into the church in Antioch. And the reason why he does that is because he recognizes the life of God on that church. And the Bible says that some plant, others water, but it's God who gives the increase. And no one can dispute that God's favor is on this congregation. And the reason why Paul or Barnabas took Paul to Antioch to be part of that church is because it was a church, the context, the climate was right to bring someone like Paul that had an incredible call of God in his life into that zone so that he could be fast-tracked into what it was that God was calling him to do and be. And I think that's very true of this congregation. I think into the future, you will see many people like the Pauls, these translocal gifts, come into the life of this church because God wants to fast track them into the very purposes that he has for them. You know, uh, one of the things that we've picked up just from this congregation and listening to Styler and Dan is that when you look at the root of discipleship, what we're called to do and what we're called to be and who we're called to make, we're to disciple the nations. Well, you have to get people to belong first. And then before they behave, you've got to make sure that they begin to believe something. And so what we preach is the Bible, and we're as narrow-minded as the Scriptures. And so once you've got the Bible in them, well, then, of course, they can behave the way that the Scriptures say that we should. So you get them to belong. There's a family expression. Then they behave only because you've taught them how to believe. And you can simply work from a belief system. If you don't have a belief system, well, then, actually, what are you going to work for and from? And so then you get those three in sync, and then of course you have this thing of where they can become something, and God has called us to become something. I was looking at Mary, and I see that the angel appeared to her and said, "You're highly favoured." She could have gone around to her friends and said, mm, "I got God inside of me. I'm highly favoured." And there is a grace that rests on you. There was a grace that rested on her, and the grace and the favour that rested on her was never just for significance or for comfort; it was actually for purpose. And this church has a favor of God in it, not for significance and not for comfort, but for purpose. And so this morning, what I'm wanting to do is just very briefly talk to you about growing where you are planted. Now, you may have heard that message before. It was something that Dan and I spoke about over the December season. When I asked him, I said, so Dan, what are you preaching? And we just talked about some of the directions that we felt we could take our churches. And I left these shores going home, and in my heart, I was carrying this thing off. 
in the midst of great adversity, that's where God proves himself to be most spectacular. And so quite often what we do is we don't want to live in this adverse circumstance. We don't want to live where everything is going against us. And life is like that, isn't it? One day you can just wake up and suddenly you've discovered that life is against you. Suddenly there's a set of circumstances you didn't anticipate, you didn't plan for it, but it just came your way. Two months ago, I woke up to discover that Nadine's brother, my wife, brother died of a heart attack. you got to know that as far as her parents are concerned, no parent expects their children to die before them. And so because they weigh into their 80s and Nadine's mom is a little frail, you can imagine how that just affected her. I think of back when my daughter, Starla's sister, was seven years old. She came home from school. She didn't look very good. And I remember saying to Nadine, Bianca looks unwell. Six months later, six weeks later, she had lost so much weight, she was 19 kilograms as a seven-year-old. Um, I need to discover that my daughter had contracted TB, tuberculosis. It's the biggest killer in Africa, and obviously because we lived in Africa, guess what? That big killer came into our home and was going to kill her. And so you've got to know that your life changes because now you hear the diagnosis from the doctors and the prognosis is we actually have to remove part of her lung. It's that bad. And I've learned that in the midst of great adversity, God proves himself to be most spectacular. And so you just think to yourself, all of this hardship. And then Jesus teaches us. He says that actually in this life, we will have tribulation. Well, this is not a great message because actually we just want to have us you know, preach to us and then we'll run through walls. We'll do great things. But you and I both know that life is a journey. And sometimes there's things that go down where you just, oh my goodness, where did it come from? And then we very often just get into that place where we whine and we moan and we groan and we're unhappy. And we just look around us and we just think, well, they've got it better than me. They got the promotion. They got the increase. I didn't. You know, it was promised to me, but yet they got it. You know, Carolyn and Andy coming onto eldership, why them and not me? <laughs> um, and so you can begin to make comparisons. And you can begin to think of yourself just as, woe is me. I always just seem to be the back end of the queue. I never get things like everyone else does. You know, I'm single. All my friends are getting married. You know that vibe? Um, oh, the church, you know, they just overlook me all the time. I'm a better musician. How come they didn't pick me for the big day, you know? And so we just always feel like, you know, we see in the donut. We see the hole and not the ring. See the glass half full. And so there's just this, it's a reality, isn't it? I mean, you know, suddenly you had this great plans. You had expectations and you would go out and you were going to do this and it didn't happen for you. You wanted to reach the top of Mount Everest. You just wanted to get airlifted up there. But what you didn't realize is that no one biologically is ready just to go and survive and exist on the top of Mount Everest. We're not born that way. You have to go through the process of getting to base camp first. And it takes about two weeks just to get there for the simple reason that base camp is five kilometers up in the air. And so even that takes a little bit of acclimatization. But we want the top. We, we don't want to do the journey of the snow and the blizzard and the crevices and the rocks no, and the long distances. No, we, we don't want to do that. So we're always thinking, oh, woe is me. Oh, look what's happening to me. When in actual fact, God's looking and saying, no, this is not happening to you. This is happening for you. Isn't that true? I got very sick. <laughs> I woke up one day and I said to Nadine, gee, I'm feeling rotten, man. And the next day I woke up, I said, oh, I'm feeling worse than yesterday. And the next day it was worse. I just kind of went into a decline. 
I remember going to see a specialist, and they did a battery of tests on me. I couldn't quite say what it was, other than I was just feeling like, you know, I was dying. And they came back to me, and they said, you know what, we have discovered something, and they named it, and they said, and it's going to lead to a particular condition called ME, which is an abbreviation for myalgic encephalomyelitis. It was the kind of, it was the, the disease of the 80s into the 90s. And I, I was just struggling, you know. And they said, prognosis, unfortunately, is people don't get well from this. You have to live. You've got to make this condition your friend. And my wife would, I was in business at the time, and Nadine would drive me to my appointments. I was just rotten, man. I had this thing for about 18 months. I remember going out to a, a bowling green, you know, bowls, not kind of the alleyway green thing. And I was praying, and God gave me a scripture out of Psalm 118, and it said this, You will not die, but you will live to manifest the exploits of God. Now I thought, wow, that's great, but God, how's that going to happen? I'm here because I'm crying out to do something, and you're telling me I'm not going to, that's great. Does that mean I'm healed right now? And I walked out of that place unhealed. <laughs> I carried on. I was, just, I was just bad. The day before my birthday, I remember walking into Sal and Bianca's bedroom. Jordan was not even a thought. And I, um, he wasn't born, meaning that, you know. And uh, I honestly thought this is the last time I'm going to see my kids. That's how bad it was. And would you believe it, the next morning I woke up. And I went through to do the shave thing and everything. I, stood, I came out, I said to Nadine, I said, I'm healed. She said, how do you know? I said, I'm telling you, there's life in me. I know the difference. I know what it's like to have death in me. And I'm telling you today, I'm healed. Yeah, that was it. Kind of a week later, I'm healed every day now. I'm waking up saying, I'm telling you, I'm healed. People in the office are looking at me and saying, what's up with that? You know, gee, he looks, I mean, they'd known me to look green and gray and dull. And, you know, now suddenly you know, I'm, I'm operating. Eh? And so um, she got a call from her parents. And they were leading a church down in Port Elizabeth. And they said, well, how's Ashley doing? And she said, well, actually, he's been, been in, yeah, he says he's healed. And so she was talking to her mom, and her mom said, oh, that's wonderful. Because on Wednesday evening last week, you must remember I woke up on the Thursday feeling different. She said, on Wednesday evening, as a church, we gathered together, and we specifically prayed for his healing. And she said, amen. She said, oh. Well, that's amazing because on the Thursday he woke up and he said he was healed. Now, I don't have an explanation. I can just tell you that happened. Outside of me going to the scriptures and just remembering, oh, but God said that I wouldn't die from this condition. Now, that was some almost 30 years ago, and I've been healed ever since. Until I flew Emirates two days ago, and now I've got a sore back, you know. But in the midst of adversity, I'm struggling, and I'm thinking, oh, where are you, God? You know, this is hard. And God just says, well, this is not happening to you. It's happening for you. Because since then, I've now got myself into a situation when I hear about miracles that need to go down. I've had an experience. But for me, what's greater than my experience is what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches that Jesus went about doing good and healing all of those who were oppressed by the devil. Man. So the Bible says... You know, the, uh, it was springtime. Southern Hemisphere spring is around September. And uh, I'm sitting at my study desk, and I am totally distracted 
by all the bird life that's suddenly come to sit on this tree outside my office. Now, I think I can recognize, identify most of the birds that visit my address. The feather type, just in case you're wondering, okay. <laughs> Gee, that sounded terrible. Then. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I noticed, wow, these birds are feasting on some fruit here. And I looked a little closer and I thought, oh, there's two different types of fruit growing on this tree. And I followed the trunk down and I thought, oh my, this tree's been outside my office for at least the last seven years. And I see it's two different types of tree. And I looked at the base of the one tree and I thought, oh my goodness, this is a mulberry tree. And if you look behind me, you will notice um, this tree standing at the back there. This is solid rock. There's a little cleft in the rock. And this tree is growing out of the cleft of that rock. And that tree is probably about half the size of this between the roof and it. And it's now seven years down the track and it's starting to bear fruit, mulberries, for the first time. I was fascinated. And I thought of the scripture that Jesus you know, he writes about in, 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 in the Gospels where you have the sower that sows the seed and you remember the seed falls on the wayside and the birds come and they eat it up. And then you've got the seed that falls amongst the rocks or the stony ground. And uh, then you've got the seed that falls amongst the thorns and, and all the distractions of this world and the cares of this life seem to rob it from it growing. And then you've got the seed that falls on the good ground. And I just thought, well, hold on a minute. <laughs> Got a little problem here because according to that scripture, that tree shouldn't be growing because that's not only stony ground, that is a rocky place. And I went to the scripture and I thought, gee, I hope I haven't caught God out here. And I paged through it and went, and then I saw, oh, what a relief. Because if you know how that text reads, he begins to explain what it was about the seed that was falling on the stony ground. He says, and the reason why it doesn't grow is because the seed doesn't take root. So that would suggest that this particular mulberry tree, it did take root. And so here it is producing fruit according to nature because it's taken root. And I never once heard it over the seven years ever say, oh, this is tough. I can't produce. I can't produce a mulberry because look at me. I'm in stony ground here. Adverse circumstances. It's not happening to you. It's happening for you. You know, God wants us to be trees. He does. He wants us to be oaks of righteousness. That's the metaphor, and that's the simile that's given to you and I. And so if you cut a tree in half, what you'll see is the age rings, and the age rings tell you so much about that tree. It'll tell you about an insect manifestation. It'll tell you about good rains and bad rains and good weather and bad weather. And the reason why you've got all of this history is because that tree is going to grow tall. And the taller we grow as a church or as individuals, the more responsibility God can put on us. I just feel to say this. God has invested in this church treasure. It's like the master goes away and he gives talents, have an investment value. It's a precious thing. And there's a responsibility attached to something that is precious. You need to steward this thing well. And you know that one, the one person that got his portion, you know, was given according to what it was that they were capable of being responsible for. He wasn't unfairly dishing out talents. Scripture very clearly says that actually they were quite capable of fulfilling what it is that he had asked them to do. 
And it's the same with this church. And so God simply would give and make an investment. Let's call it a redemptive gift. It's a nice word. Deposited in the life of this church. And so the master is going to come back. And there will be a time where actually you're going to be held to account as a congregation. And it's the elders that are leading you and helping you to steward what it is that God has put in this church. And so when the master comes back, what you want to hear is the well done. What you want to hear is, oh, I'm going to place you in charge of many things. Well, that's not that I get a special parking. I get a special seat. That's not comfort and convenience. No, that's purpose. Purpose is responsibility. Responsibility has to do with me being stewarding that gift that's inside of me. That this church, as a congregation, you unite together. And you know what? Each one of you decides today, I'm going to grow where I've planted. Isn't it amazing that we're bringing on someone today, a couple that are actually imperfect, to lead God's imperfect people? And there's the expectation that we would do perfect things, not imperfect things. And so that's where the grace factor comes in. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Don't you think God just risks with us all the time? And sometimes I think risk is spelled grace. That's not permission to do. That's just grace because you and I both look at one another, no, ourselves in the mirror, and you know what you're capable of. And God just chooses imperfection to do this incredible work called the church. And he loves it and he loves us. And so when people say, I love God, but I hate the church, <laughs> it doesn't work. We've got to love the church. I, was so, I, I know Nadine's going to say, how's it going? I want to take a photo of you guys. And I just thought, no, 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 that's not what you would want. But there is something, just, just a presence, just a favor. But each one of you are having to go through your own journey in life. And each one of you has to make a decision to say, oh, I'm going to put down roots. I'm going to grow where I'm planted. In the midst of what it is that I'm facing, I'm going to grow where I'm planted. You know, I'm going to show you two video clips in a moment. One is of Mother Teresa. And um, she's out in, you've all heard of Mother Teresa. Outstanding woman. If anything, we tear pages from her life when it comes to being patient with poor people. We love what it is that she, she was such an example just the heart of God for the poor. You read the book of James and he says, oh, by the way, this is true religion. Oh, it's true religion coming to church and singing songs and, you know, giving. Well, it is, but James says true religion is actually doing what I've heard come through this morning in a resigning way. It's making sure that we don't forget the poor. And so let's have a look at this. In the midst of great adversity, watch her stance and clearly you will see that she has taken root then the next clip I'm going to show you is a clip that comes out of Baghdad. And as you well know, as far as the world is concerned, the region that you're living in, there's a death cloud that hangs over it. Is that right? And so people think you're crazy to live where you are. Do you know that? And I've seen people's response when I say, you know, well, they ask me, how's Stalin and Dan doing? And I say, no, they're doing fine, you know. Well, where are they right now? No, they're actually in the Middle East. They're in Dubai. Really? Oh, isn't it dangerous there? You know? And you just think, well, thank God there's a benevolent leader here. And in a sense, he's made great allowances and accommodation. And God bless him for that. And he is blessing him for it. But this, he's a cellist. An org, um, a viol whatever, a cello. Let's, how many of you know what a cello is? It's like a big overgrown violin, you know. 
And when you have these catastrophic, tragic incidents that go down in this region, and especially in Baghdad, what he does is he sets up his cello in front of the destruction and devastation, and he plays. He will not be moved. In defiance to the atmosphere of death, he believes that he's bringing hope into the community. And so when that clip shows, read the words on the screen because you'll be able to follow where he's going. But let's have a look at the first clip. Mother Teresa comes from the movie Letters. Fighting terror with music. And don't you love Mother Teresa? She says, you might not want me here, 
but I know that I'm needed. Stella, Dan and I, together with my elders, were in the UK at the beginning of this year. We attended a conference, and uh, I had uh, arranged for all of my elders to come with me, and so I had nine of um, them in tow. And we arrived in this big conference venue, um, and, you know, we paid airplane ticket fees and we, hotel fees. And, you know, I want a good seat, you know. And so I remember kind of walking in, and uh, I had these guys behind me, like my bodyguards. No, I'm just teasing. All right. And um, I noticed that there was a whole row, like three rows in the front over on the side. And so I thought, they don't, they don't look reserved, so let me go. And the closer I got to them, I realized they weren't reserved. But I also noticed on the other side, I was coming down this aisle. On the other side of the aisle, there was a couple and they were aiming for exactly the same row. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to be a good Christian here and I'm going to get there first, okay? <laughs> and so I kind of picked up speed, but as I did that, I noticed they did the same thing. And I just thought, you know what, and then, then I put on the swag, you know, I thought, all right, okay? Got to slow down, you can't walk like this, you know? So I was, like, I was cruising, you know, just thought, let me get there before they do, you know? And as I walked in, I was counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, smiling, nine, you know? And they got there and they moved right up next to me. And oh, it was so awkward, you know, one of those awkward feelings. They made me do that. And uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have done that if they hadn't hastened their pace, you know? I would have just been quite dignified, but anyway. And it was awkward, so, you know, now we're smiling at each other. <laughs> and I thought, all right, okay, you know, um, part of confession is to be friendly. So I just said, hello, how are you? <laughs> you know? And they greeted me, and I said, where are you from? And they said, Syria. <laughs> I said, Syria? <laughs> I said, the real Syria? <laughs> this is a couple of months back. And they said, yeah, the real Syria. I said, oh, okay. Where in Syria? They said, Damascus. I said, wow. <laughs> Over the time, we actually got to spend time with them and got to talk to them and find out their story. And uh, I, I was in just such admiration for this man as he began to describe what it was that they were up against. He said, you know that actually 90% of the time, Syria is in darkness. And I straight away thought of the scripture in Isaiah that speaks about, you know what? There's a great light that will come where darkness rules. And guess what? The light is the church. Isn't that fascinating? We read the book of Genesis, and you see that in the beginning there was God, and then God, the Holy Spirit, is the creator spirit, and he just creates this cosmos out of nothing. And then he says, let there be light, and there's light, and then it carries on. And I don't know if you've noticed, it's only a little bit way down that God makes the sun and the moon. Also, hold on a minute, where did the light come from? Because <laughs> the light's mentioned way back in earlier sections. And then you realize as you read the scripture, oh, hold on a minute, but didn't Jesus say that he was the light of the world? And so you just see how Jesus is woven in and the Holy Spirit is woven in. And this is a combined effect. Elohim, God, plural God, actually is the one that's creating. Because the identity of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Quite remarkable. And I just thought to myself, isn't this incredible? I said, wow, so the conditions there are tough. He says, oh, yeah, it is. He says, we have couples. We have ten couples. And what we've been doing is we've been going into the homes in our community and we've been visiting people that have been have had lost loved ones. He says we see children, their bodies are broken, they're missing limbs. And all we do is he says we weep with them. He says, man, I tell you, most of my day is spent just crying. And when they talk about it, you can see that in their hearts there's this compassion. But I have to tell you that Syria right now is stony ground, and you've got people there, the church there, and they're saying like Nehemiah, who am I? I'm not a man that I'm going to run. I'm staying. 
Now clearly for them, God has said they should stay. And so clearly for them what it is that they're doing, and this is the response, this is the fruit from the community around about them. They're saying, we have Allah in heaven, but we've got the Christians on earth that are demonstrating his heart. I don't know about you, but that stirs me. My daughter and son-in-law have just recently become British citizens. We got any Brits here? Yeah? Right, you so conservative. Ooh. <laughs> it's like the golfer clap, you know? Very two-finger British. You are so true <laughs> to your roots. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> that was almost cute, you know? Well, anyway, they've now become woo people. Um, <clears throat> but what I find so interesting is that actually it wasn't that easy. They needed to write a test. You see, when you cross that line that says, well, I actually like what it is that I see, and so therefore I'm not going to become British, Okay. What the British government simply says, well, that's fine. Then you've got to do a couple of things. You're going to have to inherit all of what it is, our accumulated memories, what we call history. You're going to have to inherit because that's actually going to become yours. You can't wave a British flag unless you know that that's your history. And, oh, by the way, we've got a future. We're going over there. You've got to make sure that you're stepping in across this line. You're going to become British. You're going with us. And so don't just think you're going to become British and just enjoy your Britishness now and all of the blessings and all of the comforts that come with just being British. He said, no, 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 you're going to have to know the history. And so you know what they did? They had to write a test. And Bianca phones me. She says, Dad, if I didn't have studied for that test, they asked me about Wales and about Scotland and about Ireland, and they asked me about kings and queens. And she said, man, if I didn't have studied, I wouldn't have passed. Because they were just simply saying, you want to have this true identity of being British? Well, then you know what? You've got to take on our past. You've got to take on our future. And that's exactly and that's equally true for us as believers. Why do I say that? Because we've got, an, we've got accumulated history. It's called the Old Covenant. It's called the New Covenant. And so there are letters that have been written that describe the church, its history, how it was formed, the book of Acts. And God has put in things in place that He wants us to know that what He's written is important. And so when He talks about eldership, it's high on God's agenda. doesn't just want the church to be out there kind of, you know, where are we going? No, He's put banks in place so that the river can flow. And those banks are banks of governance, of doctrine of discipline, of direction. And so he'll put leaders in place so that actually we all need to be led. And so God's chosen an administration which is perfect for you and I, and he's called it eldership. And so you have one individual, Andy, for example, who's coming on today together with his wife, and on him is this thing of governance, this thing of presbyteros, Poimain, Episcopos, Bishop, Shepherd, Ruler. It's one man, three different functions. And so when we look at the church, what do you see? The church is described as being saints, which is you and I, deacons, which are people that are simply just given a responsibility to serve, a recognized responsibility. And then you have elders, nothing more, nothing less. We can come up with our fancy names and call the people what we want to, but let's look at what the Bible calls them and simply describes an office gift that has a function to it. And so we look at this and we realize we've got to embrace it because God thinks it's important that there be leaders in the church. God thinks it's important that we get married. doesn't want us to live together. It's high on God's agenda. It's high on God's agenda that we disciple people. So these are things that God puts in the church. We are to embrace them if we're to become a citizen of heaven. 
if we're to step in and become the body of Christ, well, then we might as well look back into history and say, Abraham, well, him and me are like this. He's the father of my faith, so to speak. But his story is my story. The people of Israel, as they went through the wilderness, their story is my story. That's what's expected just in the natural. You step into that realm called Britain, you're going to have to embrace all of the British history. And you're going to have to say, well, that's my history. Yes, Bianca and Mark, you may have ancestors that live outside of Britain, but I want to tell you their history matters no more to you because you're becoming this new British creature. We're becoming new creatures in Christ. So we're stepping into this body. We take on this new identity. It means embracing all of those stories about Daniel, not stories, the historical accounts. We identify with everything, Ruth and, and, and what you see in the Bible with David, King David and, and Joseph and all of it. We embrace those. That's our family. And then God says, you know what? I have a direction for the church. I have a purpose for you. My favor rests on you because you're mine. But that's where we're going. So come on, let's gather together. And that's the incredible thing. It's this holy nation that the Bible speaks about. It's this royal priesthood that the Bible speaks about that you and I step into. We identify with it. But you want to know something? (laughs) Even in that, the journey that we have, do we ever get there? Or do we just continue on this journey? When we get to heaven, is that it? Our journey's over. We've arrived. Or is there that God has purpose for us? I think it's the latter. Coming up, I'm going to show you one last video and then bring us to a close. You'll identify with us. Hardship. But my goodness, let's journey together. Ready for it. Thanks.
On this journey, you're going to find irritations. Maybe it's the person next to you that's the greatest irritation. <laughs> you know, the people of God went into captivity. Some of you are stabbing your husband there. <laughs> See, special Dave, he's a dad, okay? People of God go into captivity. And, oh, they, they are just hating it. And one of the Psalms actually records it. It says, you know, by the rivers of Babylon, we would sing. We'd hang our harps up on the willow trees. He says, now. And then, of course, the Babylonians, you know, they weren't sensitive at all. They just simply said, why don't you play us one of your happy songs? And they didn't want to play for them. They hated them. They didn't want to be where they were. So Jeremiah, <laughs> prophet of God, he arrives. He says, oh, by the way, people of God, I've got a message. He says, to all the exiles that I've taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses. Make yourselves at home, put in gardens, and eat what grows in that country. Marry and have children. Encourage your children to marry and have children so that you'll thrive in the country and not waste away. Make yourselves at home. Work for the country's welfare. Pray for Babylon's well-being. If things go well for you, well, they'll go well for Babylon as well. Yes, believe in me. This is the message from the God of the angel armies. I don't know about you, but I don't think they wanted to hear that message. And maybe this morning you're thinking, yes, you don't know my set of circumstances. But you know what? When there's a little bit of an adjustment, there's a little bit of a change of heart, and we realize, you know what? This is not happening to me. This is happening for me. And then you can realize that, oh, by accepting that, there is the sowing of seeds for my future that God is going to give life to. And can I say this? Let's not be a people that park next to our failures. Because that was Judas did that. Peter and Judas did the same thing. They betrayed Jesus. But Judas parked next to his failure. And you know what happened to him? Peter didn't. Peter ran to Jesus and just confessed. So the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, she arrived. And you know what happened? Sweet forgiveness was extended to her. And she got up. And she, for sure, was enabled to marry any man after that because of forgiveness she could have been any child's mother because of forgiveness god's amazing are we there yet i don't think so are we journeying together let's do it together won't you grow where god has planted can we pray father we humbly ask that you would give us the grace for the moment that we find ourselves in several many in fact may well be looking to you for that miracle miracle of life father would you answer their prayers because you've said to us that whatsoever things we desire when we pray believe that we receive them and we shall have them and if there's a faith journey help us to be committed to looking to you as being our provider and our protection and our strong tower would you be that to this congregation as you take them on this incredible journey Give us grace for one another. Let's grow where we're planted. Let's take root in the midst of an adverse situation. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.